Welcome to Exec Insights, conversations about Australian business and the changing world. I'm Kate Joyner from QUT's Graduate School of Business, and today my guest is a colleague in the Graduate School, Dr. Rachel Collis. Rachel teaches negotiation skills on the Executive MBA and MBA programs. Rachel has had a full, interesting and varied career. Prior to uh, ranging into corporate coaching and training, Rachel was a doctor and gained 15 years experience as a consultant psychiatrist. So Rachel, consultant psychiatrist sounds like an interesting place from which to launch (laughs) an interest in negotiation, really. I can see how that would come in handy. Do you find that? Absolutely, yes. The kind of first negotiations I did were as a junior doctor um, on psychiatric wards. Mm. And they were mainly about stopping people killing themselves, killing other people and killing me was where I kind of learnt my skills. And I would say I mainly learnt those skills from some very experienced nurses who had been around and knew how to do that really well. So that's really negotiation, negotiating in when the stakes are really high. Really right? high, yeah, mm. yeah. And so, uh, but actually, when you come down to it, it's the same, that the skills are the same of trying to understand the other person's perspective and trying to build trust and trying to get them to talk to you about what really matters to them. Now, before we get into the nuts and bolts of negotiating, which I'm really um, interested to hear about, so I know you've actually got a, um, an associated interest in career and career management. Mm-hmm. So your own career is actually quite varied. So one would wonder how you move from uh, background in, medi- in medicine and psychiatry, um, yeah. psychology, or psychiatry, psychiatry yeah. Uh, to where you are now. So with that interest in leadership and so forth. So. I guess in one hop it sounds like a, a real change, but I suppose it happened gradually, is that right? Did you have a real intention or did it...? So no, so I had an intention to leave psychiatry, I got really burnt out, psychiatry's hard. Um, and what I did, looking back now, is a thing that you call, you call a night's moving career, which is you move somewhere that's kind of logical next and then from that somewhere logical next and then end up in a third space that is really a long way from your first place. And so the first place I moved into was mediation training. I trained as a mediator and I started off doing a lot of workplace mediations where one member of a group was living with some sort of mental illness that was making it hard for them to interact with other people was where I kind of started. And then that kind of morphed out into all sorts of workplace mediations and and then kind of team facilitation. And then from there, I started to see that the people I was working with, that the answers to a lot of their problems were actually in the leadership and management literature. So I became very, very interested in that and started to learn that. And so they moved into executive coaching and then gradually built a relationship with QUT and ended up teaching negotiation skills on the executive MBA program, which I love. So it's that crossover between negotiation, psychiatry and leadership? Yeah, kind of gradually kind of bit by bit moving from one thing to another mm. thing. Yeah. So what interested you or where did what kind of solutions were you looking for in the leadership literature? I guess I'm interested in that because I kind of think the leadership literature is kind of a theoretical in a way. Yeah. Mm. Well well the problems so the problems I saw particularly as a mediator were people not enjoying their work, people not having enough direction so they didn't know what they were supposed to be achieving and not kind of feeling rewarded when they did achieve it people feeling disconnected to other people in their team. Um, Just standard day at work, right? Yeah, exactly. All of the kind of stuff that we work on when we try and help people be better leaders and managers, that those skills of helping, creating coherent teams and helping people be effective are what makes people then get upset and fall Uh, out. So it's actually a more systemic 
so trying to dissolve the problem that requires mediation rather than solving the... Yes, mm. actually get underneath, well, what is going on, rather than actually coming up with a patch solution, actually, well, what is going on here in this team that we could actually change? I got very interested in yeah, that. Yeah, so as not to need so much mediation service. Yeah, yeah I can yeah. get with that. So we'll get into um, negotiation, the kinds of things that we that um, you might share with MBA students, for example, in our number one our EMBA uh, program in the country. Woo-hoo. I'll say this is a podcast without advertisement, really. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll throw in a plug. We are the number one EMBA in the country. Yay us. Um, but so the kinds of things we might we might look at with um, our students. So um, I, was, I was told to ask you your story about buying your car uh, and you had perhaps a very elaborate spreadsheet which uh, exemplified the use of what we might call a BATNA which is a, a best alternative to a negotiated solution uh, and outcome. BATNA, what's A for BATNA? Uh, no, be- best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Agreement. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, like a lot of people, had to buy a new car and of course I am a negotiator, that's my thing. And, so if you um, can't get the best price on exactly, a car, who and, can? You know, my, my career is hanging on the line, can I do this properly? It's quite stressful. And what made it even more stressful was the um, sales rep in the way that they do said, and what do you do? And, and I actually honestly told him I teach negotiation on the MBA program. He's like, oh, okay. Yes, um, so you know all my tricks. <laughs> that's right. So, so we, we kind of, but, but I think he thought that then that would mean I would be kind of tough and mean to him. And, and of course, it was the opposite that the basis of good negotiation is doing lots of preparation. And so that involved finding out what um, the best um, price was for the car I wanted. And um, I shouldn't do a plug, but I do. There's a website called Autogenie in Australia that you can spend $49 and put, say, this is the car I want. And they'll give you at least three offers from um, dealerships around Australia. Mm, which would cut down the, the salesman's repertoire yes. quite considerably. I Absolutely. Imagine. So you go in and you've got, you know, three really good offers that, and so that's your batner that if this person in front of me can't do a better offer than that, then I'm going to buy the car off the web. Easy. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, a mistake people make in negotiations is that there's a lot of data to hold in their head. And so they try and hold it in their head and then they get befuddled and confused and so make a decision that isn't the right decision for them. So I made a spreadsheet of the various, you know, items that I might want and what the cost was of them. And um, as he was putting together various deals, I ran it through the spreadsheet on my iPad in front of him. And this poor fellow said, what are you doing (laughs) on your iPad then? I said, I've just got a spreadsheet, I'm just running the numbers. And this fellow was in his 50s, he'd been a sales rep all of his life. He said, I've never seen anybody do that which I found astounding because I don't understand how anybody could manage so to make So he's just sort of doing an arbitrage out of complexity, you know. Yeah. So that's, that's where the, the uh, value can be added from his perspective, that we're yeah. all befuddled by complexity. Yes, that we're befuddled and so therefore we miss the fact that they've offered me something that's really only worth $30 but made me think it's something big. Whereas, you know, if you've got the numbers, you can sit and so do it. So you stay in the rational space. Yes, you, and you can keep on checking back and it gives you space. But you have to be quite determined to do that because, of course, yeah, that's not in their interest for you to make this very logical, rational decision. But I did and I bought the car. But of course the tricky thing about negotiation is 
I can never really know whether they would have done a better deal for me or not. <laughs> you know, There still has to be some art to it. Yes, it? exactly. Mm. So I did my best and who knows, but I'm very pleased with the car. Well, and actually, it was oh, I've already learned a lot from that because I'm actually in the car oh, market for are. a car. Or I'm thinking I am because think- I haven't got a car, it died. Now I'm in that space, do I wait for this world where we don't have to drive a car? I'm thinking, is it here now? Am I in it? <laughs> exactly. <It's laughs> so if I didn't have to, boy, I so wouldn't. But anyway, it, but that's the point that um, negotiating on the sale price of a car, which is like a classic negotiation, that's the kind of skill we associate with negotiation, so getting the best possible outcome for yourself yes. and extracting the most amount of concession from the other party. So it's like a two-party, one-shot situation. Um, and you'll never have to see that car salesman again, so you don't have to kind of build a relationship. But of course, in organisational life, it's uh, what we have to deal with is a lot richer and more complex than that. So often if we're in government, it's a policy that requires stakeholder engagement on wide-ranging. If we're in the private sector, it might be a huge construction project. Again, many stakeholders, many variables, lots of complexity that we um, hopefully don't keep in our head. But what changes from um, from the kind of car dealership negotiation to something that's a little bit richer, more moving parts? So there's, there's a lot there, Kate. And you're exactly right that most negotiations that leaders do are highly complex. And often there may be numbers in it, but often it's the things other than the numbers that matter a lot. And in those kind of negotiations, building trust and maintaining trust, and doing a deal that the person will still think is a good deal six months later is really important because if you've got an ongoing relationship with somebody and they realise you've done them over, mm. they either won't negotiate with you again or if they do, they're going to be really tough to negotiate. Mm. So that's like the repeated game exercise in like game yeah, theory? Mm. absolutely, yeah. Mm. And so all of a sudden we have to start thinking about their needs and their wants and how we can um, create these integrative solutions where... Um, I try and work out if I can give you something that really matters to you that actually doesn't matter to me and vice versa. So that was, um, in preparation for this uh, podcast interview, you sent me our our Harvard Business Review outcomes about six mistakes. So actually mistake number one was neglecting the other side's problems, so only going in with our own worldview and our own understanding about our own interests where um, negotiating one-on-one, negotiation one-on-one is starting with them and putting yourself in their headspace. And um, I think it's about focusing on um, interests rather than... um, Positions. Positions, yes. Yes. Is that a classic mistake people make or what you... you Yeah, both of those. So the problem with um, the perspective-taking piece of actually kind of pouring yourself into the other person's perspective is it's really hard that... Um, particularly if it's an emotional negotiation, we kind of get very attached to our own view and that we're right and that the other person's wrong. And so actually kind of trying to think about the ways that they might be right and the ways how the world is viewed from their place is incredibly hard and sometimes quite uncomfortable. And so it's easy for us to avoid that. And so that's a really hard piece. And the other piece that you mentioned is the shift from positions to interest. So if the position is the thing I say I want, I want the million dollars. But the interest is, well, why do I want that? Why is that important to me? What am I going to use that for? Um, and that matters because once we can get into those underlying interests, we can start to be more creative. So if I want a million dollars because I want to give up work, then that's a different thing to if I want a million dollars so I can buy a house and pay my kids school fees. 
And so once we actually get into those deeper things, we can be much more creative in our problem solving and kind of look at, well, what, what does this person really want? What do I really want? And how can we work out how we can both give each other what we want? What we want, yeah. So I'm thinking too, and some of the examples that uh, I was reading in the HBR article and speaking with you, it's about, I, I think those of us who have to negotiate or work with you know, multi-stakeholder policy, it does require a level of, um, I'll say emotional intelligence, one could also say grown-upness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, grown-upness meaning that we can't be driven by our ego, I think, or wanting to feel that we need to win in all circumstances. Um, and that can be, in, in my experience, I used to, oh, I still do quite a lot of work with partnering, you know, partnering workshops of, of all kinds. And uh, the need to win and to and to kill the, well, the person across the other table is still the default, I find. There is a great theory that I'm probably going to misquote called something like the argumentative theory of reasoning or something that says that the default position of humans when they're having a discussion is not to get to the truth, but it's to win. Mm -hmm. And that that comes back because for most of our history, we were living in these small groups and what we needed to do was become the dominant ape or the dominant person in the troop. And so winning mattered. It, the truth didn't matter very much. It was winning. And so there's this kind of deep thing in our default. There's some they're French cognitive psychologists who have this theory that actually this is a default position for humans to just want to win and that we claim we're interested in the truth, but we find that intensely difficult to actually find, to actually kind of sit with what I want to know is what's really true here and what's true for you and, and kind of where's the messy place in the middle of the truth. Mm. We just want to win. We just want to win. And um, often, uh, this is where we get to, uh, and I think it's about uh, human rationality. So we know that Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize this week for his work on behavioural economics. So we know that human beings aren't always driven by rationality. So it's like it's classic in a divorce, for example, that you would rather come away with nothing than to see that other person come away with, with more than you. You know, you'd rather just tip the whole bowl of everything out rather than see that person get more than you. So we're driven, you know, just by basic human drives, aren't we, oh, uh, for yeah. the most part. There's a wonderful um, video that I encourage people to Google um, about the cucumber grape monkey study, um, which I show my students, which has this delightful thing of um, two monkeys who have to give a, do a task, which is give a researcher a rock. And they can see each other, but they can't kind of, they can't touch each other. And the um, researcher gives one monkey a piece of cucumber in exchange for the rock, and the other monkey um, gets a grape in exchange for the rock. And when it starts, the first monkey gets his cucumber and he's like, fine, I've, I've given you a piece of rock and I've got a cucumber, I'm happy. Then the monkey sees the other one get the grape and this monkey goes crazy and, and he, won't, he, he won't accept the cucumber. He starts hurling the cucumber at the researcher and banging and sort of, and the researcher who talks about this says, you know, here's the Wall Street protest, that we would rather hurl our cucumber at somebody if we feel things are in equal and have nothing than actually be the person with the cucumber when you have got the grape because it's not fair and so this kind of primitive desire to to achieve equality and fairness is so deep so deep yeah what is that i remember a colleague of mine we were we had to distribute a superannuation surplus funds you know and uh, and he said no i'm sorry i won't accept this uh, this my superannuation and you know, I said, hey, you know, like you have to accept it, it's your money. No, because if I accept it, I'll have to give some to my wife in the divorce settlement and I would rather have nothing 
than give her anything. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yes. We're um, not rational beings. No, we're not rational in, in a lot of ways too. So, I mean, that mistake number six in the Harvard Business Review about failing to correct for skewed vision. Yeah. So not checking, um, you know, we've got a self-serving um, bias. Uh, it's, uh, and checking biases, biases of all kinds, you know, is something and, and ability for our brain to deal with complexity. So we've got bounded rationality, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So um, I guess there's some um, techniques, like your spreadsheet was a technique to get around yes. complexity yeah. and what yes. that does to our brain. Yeah. And I'm assuming there's some other ways that we can correct for our own biases. Yeah, but biases are interesting because um, some of them, just knowing about them helps, that being aware of, say, egocentrism, that you see the world through your eyes. And so you know every single time that you take the bin out, but you only perhaps notice 30% of the time that your partner takes the bin out, so therefore it feels like you always take the bin out. That we can kind of, if we remind ourselves that, of that kind of helps. But there's some cognitive biases, like anchoring, which is where if you get given a number, any random number, and then asked to give a price for something, that the size of the number you were given beforehand actually has an impact on the number that you, you, the number that you offer. Um, uh, car sales people use this because they have a price on the car that then anchors as this is the price that we've got to pay. Uh, and even knowing about anchoring apparently doesn't protect us from it, we're still impacted on it. And so this is where doing things like um, doing lots of research to find what you think is a reasonable price for a car and having a spreadsheet and putting all sorts of checks and balances in, a, in place to kind of manage your failings as a human and the failings of your human mind and recognising that you have yet. Mm. And perhaps recognising too. I mean, I fully recognise that I'm not a great negotiator and I, I, um, because I feel that my interests are not um, worth fighting yes. for. You know? I, and I, I'm refrained from saying that's a female thing. Um, Sadly, it is. Kate. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, so, what it looks like, there is some research that suggests that women are probably better negotiators than men when they are negotiating on the beh behalf of other, other people. people. Yeah. But when they're negotiating for themselves, they're worse. And because of this, this thing that that women are socialised to not ask for what they need. And if you look at it, women actually tend to, it's getting better, it's definitely getting better, women get punished when they actually ask for what they need. So a woman who tries to negotiate her salary will be seen as aggressive, whereas a man who tries to negotiate his salary will be seen as assertive. I think that's changing. The sense I get is that that is changing, but I think it's a thing that is a problem mm. that we need to be And I guess if I put my rational brain on, it would say, well, perhaps in the, in the business of buying a car, which I may well soon, uh, it may be better just to send in a proxy to do yeah. all the negotiating for me yeah. if I'm not capable of yeah. negotiating for myself um, because of built-in whatever's pre-programmed um, narratives or scripts in my brain. Just getting somebody else to do it is probably a good idea. And the, uh, the other suggestion that Margaret Neal makes, Margaret Neal did, uh, she's a um, thought leader in negotiation and she did some stuff for the Lean In project mm -hmm. and her suggestion for women for this is to think about who you else you were kind of negotiating on behalf of. So she said, I mean, this is an interesting, she said when she's negotiating her salary package, she thinks about her horses and how she wants to spend time with her horses and her horses are expensive, so she's negotiating on behalf of her horses. And so to kind of think about that when you're doing these negotiations, although it feels like it's for you, it is actually for lots of other stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of bring them into the room can help you to be more assertive. That is so true, yes. And I think that's what I did on my last 
<laughs> kind of position yeah, yourself. To kind of rise, make yourself rise up and do it. Yeah. So um, negotiating is still a, like a really key skill, which is why we teach it in our MBA program. So it's kind of fundamental to most business practice. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. And that's the, I've just finished teaching um, the MBA cohort I was teaching this weekend. And that was the thing that they come up to me kind of after about kind of the second um, workshop, they come and say, oh, Rachel, I didn't realise this is a fundamental leadership skill. We're doing this all the time, aren't we? All the time. We're constantly negotiating with people and it's such an important skill. So yeah, I am really passionate that um, if we can help leaders to be better negotiators, we help them to be better leaders um, and the world gets better. I would agree. And I'm going to finish on. I haven't prepped you for this, so uh, if we have to take our time, we will. What are you reading at the moment? What's interesting? Oh, I am reading um, Radical Candor by Kim Scott, which is a wonderful book. Kim Scott um, worked for Google for Sheryl Sandberg and also she's worked in Apple. She got oh, I know this one. This, yes, great book. And she also got offered um, the position of CEO of Twitter, but she didn't take it because she just had twins. So she's an you know, impressive woman. And this book is about the importance of us being radically candid, which is, she says, you know, as leaders, being really honest and being really willing to give people you know, honest and courageous feedback. But she said that has to be in a context where we repeatedly demonstrate A, deep care for the other person, and B, that we are willing to take the feedback. And it's a delightful book about leadership. I'm really enjoying it. Both things it. really hard. <laughs> yes, exactly. Really, none of, really. Yeah. None of this is easy. No, exactly. And and yeah. And so she takes quite a lot of time, you know, talking it through. And it's a lovely book because she talks quite often about the ways in which she failed. It's not a you know I'm so marvelous book. It's you know oh I did this thing where I just you know refused to take a piece of feedback and then expected somebody else to take feedback or some sort of thing like that. And it's yeah, I recommend it. Any leaders. Thank you for that tip. And Rachel Collis, we've, it's been a while in the negotiating to get you here, but, uh, but obviously uh, my negotiating skills were good enough to get you here. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been lovely to talk with you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's executive education programs, please search QUT Executive Education and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.